please turn in your Bible to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible or you need one, uh, I think we have some in the back. Uh, some of our staff members would be happy to, to get you one and make sure you have one so you can follow along. Uh, James chapter 1 is where we're going to be this morning. And in fact, over the next couple weeks, uh, we're going to be doing a, a study, a, a series, you could say, on a salvation. And so we'll, we'll start up in the book of September or in the, in the month of September with the book of uh, Colossians. That's where we're going to be heading this semester. But before we get there and before we enter into that awesome uh, letter from Paul, uh, I want to look at this letter from James, at least chapter one of it. And I want to set us up for the time that we'll spend this fall with a clear understanding and a clear communication of salvation. And we'll start with it this morning in terms of why we need to be saved. This is what we'll look at this morning, why we need to be saved. Then next week we'll look at how we can be saved. And lastly, we'll look at how do we know that we're saved. That's the mission and the goal and desire of us in this ministry and our church. We want you to understand rightly who God is, and in that we want, to write, want you to rightly understand who you are and how you stand before him. And in order to do so, we have to start on the front end here with, well, why do we need to be saved at all? You probably hear that all the time at our church. You probably, if you were with us with, at camp, you heard about salvation and needing to be saved. And uh, you, you hear this repeatedly Sunday mornings in your small groups, in your Bible studies, over and over and over, but why? Why is it that we make such a big deal about salvation? Well, that's what we're going to talk about this morning. And we're going to do that by looking at James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. In fact, I'm going to go ahead and start in verse 12 um, to help us out here. Read with me. The Word of God says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Pray with me, Father, as we enter into your word, may its truth etch itself on our hearts. May we behold uh, the precious realities that you have revealed to us so that we would not wander any longer, but instead we would know you and know your truth and thereby follow you every day of our lives. Thank you that you are so kind and gracious so as to give us your word, a word that guides us and leads us, exposes our sins, exposes our heart for what it is, and also uh, explains to us the matchless beauty of Christ. In him we have all of our hope. And even as we see this morning, uh, we need Jesus 
because we are mighty saviors, but he is a mightier savior, mighty sinners, and he is a mightier savior. Thank you, God, for how wonderful you are and your gospel truths. Thank you for revealing yourself to us in your word, and may it work in our hearts this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as, we, as I thought about this entire back-to-school situation, uh, a fond memory, fond image that I have in my mind as we all go back to school is that beloved worm that is always hanging out of an apple. And it always looks so cute and so clip-arty when you go to your teacher's desk and you see it. And it's been there since the first grade, and you've never bothered to ask why it's there. And so I've decided to ask the question as I was studying this week. Why is it that we care so much about apples and worms? The answer is that we don't. We actually don't care about them at all. But I did learn some fascinating stuff. Uh, There's an image up here of an apple making its way through a, a worm, making its way through an apple. I don't know if I can speak English. I think I need to go back to school. Um, it's a worm making its way through a otherwise really good-looking apple. And it's set up shop in there. And some fascinating stuff that I learned about this is, because I've always asked, how does, this, how does a worm get into an apple? I feel like all of us should be able to tell that a worm is working its way through an apple and stop that from happening. The reason you can't do that is because don't, Worms don't start from the outside of an apple. They start on the inside. There are certain bugs, and you would call them fruit flies, and Wikipedia would call them apple maggot flies. They lay eggs inside of fruit, particularly apples. And when they do, those eggs hatch, and from the inside, those worms work their way out. Disgusting. And this is what your teachers put on their desk to convince you that you need to be educated. It's disgusting, isn't it? They wreak havoc on such precious fruit, and they do so by working from the inside out. Humanity is much of the same. Humanity works in the very same way. That image, that picture, even as you can see it there in some weird portrait that someone developed, there's something about that fruit that on the outside still looks really good. But it's been decaying for long, a long, long time from the inside. And such is the very state of our souls. The reason that we need to be saved is because on the outside, we oftentimes look good. But on the inside, we are rotting. On the outside, we tend to show off that we have it all put together. But on the inside, we are rebellious against God and even against others. On the outside, we give this image that everything's okay, but every single person in this room has one thing in common, and that's that on the inside, everything is not. Each and every single one of us needs to be saved. We need the gospel because on the inside, we're decaying, and sooner or later, it will all show itself true. But we need to be saved because from the inside out, we have rejected God and he knows it. Though you can come to church and you can go to your Bible study and you can meet with leaders and you can even meet with each other and you can recite Bible verses to one another and you can sing songs, God knows the state of your heart better than anyone else might know it. 
And this is why we start with this point of salvation. In order to get to the good news of what Jesus has done for you, you have to understand the bad news of what's inside of you. That no one is to blame for that but you and you alone. The sin that exists in your heart, it's there because you love it. You cater to it. You allow it. You give it room to grow and to blossom. And James is pointing us to the reality that that's the nature of our hearts. And that only leads to one thing. As he tells us in verse 15, sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. You know, apple pickers will tell you that it's really hard to tell when a worm has been making its way through the fruit. The only way that you finally get to tell is at harvest time. And when you get to harvest time, you find a mushy, brown, rotten apple. And that's when you know. The same is true for every sinner in this room. The way that you know that you are a sinner in need of salvation is that death is stamped upon your life. You cannot escape it. That is the great consequence that each and every single one of us faces. Death is a winner at a one-to-one ratio. No one has escaped it, and you're kidding yourself if you think, you think you're the first one that will. Everyone understands that that's reality. And it's a reminder to us, not only that we die, but that we need life. So why do we need to be saved? It's because we're sinners. We're sinners because we want to be. We're sinners because we love to be. And we know that because death is our great consequence. We want to see that this morning here so that we might give ourselves more fully to Jesus. If we in and of ourselves are sinners that only bring forth death, then we need someone who can give us life. That's why we need to talk about this. That's why that's in our Bibles. God's not just putting it out there in front of you to make fun of you or to tease you. He's putting it in front of you to be real with you and to show you that there's something far greater than the things that you think are worth pursuing and dying for. So let's look at that together. This morning, we'll see that in three ways. We'll see that we need to be saved because death is our default. We need Jesus because without him, we're lost in the things that God hates. And we'll see that in three ways. One is we need to understand rightly God has nothing to do with our sin. Two, we need to see we only have ourselves to blame for our sin. And three, we'll see that we cannot produce the life that God gives us. And we've got some slides that'll help you put that a little bit more succinctly, but that's the outline of where we're going today. God's way never leads to sin. Our way only leads to sin. And thirdly, our way never produces God's blessings. That's what we want to see this morning. There is a a way to blessing, but it isn't going to be in ourselves because sinners can't change their nature. We need something else. And if we want the way of blessing, we need what God has to offer. And in order to accept what God offers, we need to accept his truth. That's what we have this morning. And let's start with verse 13. God's way never leads to sin. We need salvation because we are sinners by nature. 
And the thing that's very quick to happen when we fall into sin is that we turn to God and we blame him for it. And if you don't think this is true, you just need to turn back in your Bible to the very beginning of all time. Our great forefather, Adam. Him and Eve get caught in sin. And the moment that God shows up, we all know Adam's famous words. Well, God, it was the woman you gave me. And dudes like to laugh about it because you think you can blame girls, but that's not the point. Yes, he blames his wife to some extent, but do you notice who else he blames? The woman you gave me. That was Adam's default, right? That's what Adam chose to do in the beginning of all time. Once sin entered into the world, he pointed back at heaven and said, God, this is your fault. May it never be true of us. That's our inclination, isn't it? When something goes wrong, we find every excuse in the book as to why we aren't the problem. When we make a mistake, we find everyone else who fed into or played a part in that mistake with us. It's not just me. It's all this other stuff. It's my circumstances, my situations. It's my brother. It's my sister. It's my friend. It's my friend group. It's my, it's my life. It's everything around me, but it's never me. In fact, it might even be God. May it never be said of you that you talk of him that way. God wouldn't have you think of him in that way. And God is such a kind God that God doesn't just tell you, well, it's not me. He explains himself. He says, you could never blame me, and let me tell you why. That's what James does here even for us in James 1.13. Let no one say, when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. When temptation comes your way and sin is uh, crouching at the door and you have that decision to make, you can't blame God for pointing you in that direction. That's not what he does. That isn't from him. That's not how God works. Why is it that we can say that? End of verse 13. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Psalm 5 verse 4 says, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. Reason number one, we can't blame God when evil comes our way or when temptation comes our way is God cannot be tempted with evil. There is no evil in him. There's no desire for it. There's no appetite for it. That's not a craving of God's. That's not something he ever looks for. It's not something he ever wants. It's not something that's in him, let alone something he would desire. Evil may not dwell with him. You know the story of Isaiah Landing before God in Isaiah chapter 6, it's the first thing he hears. Holy, holy, holy. Perfect, perfect, perfect. Pure, pure, and pure. No evil, no evil, no evil. That's who God is. We can never point the finger at God because God cannot and will not Give himself to evil. Number two, if God doesn't give himself to evil, he himself will also tempt no one. 
You see the second reason here that God's way never leads to sin. One is God is not evil. God is not tempted by evil, but also God does not tempt with that which he's not tempted. Another way of putting this is, is, is this. I feel bad for the guy. This is two weeks in a row, so I'm going to have to give him a break. But we found Nemo after last Sunday, and we took him home. And we teach these kids every single day different things, things that are important, you know, like don't touch the stove. Why don't I want him to touch the stove? Because I know that's not something I want for myself. It only leads to bad things. He's got a burn mark right now because he doesn't listen. But that's not something I don't want for him because I'm trying to keep him from something that's good for him. I'm trying to keep him from something that I know is bad for him. I'm not tempted by that. I don't want to be burned. And so I wouldn't want that for my son. Your heavenly father does not delight in evil, isn't tempted by evil, and so he would never wish that upon his children. And so though we have a sin nature, And though we're tempted to sin in so many different ways, and though we're pulled back and forth to do things that would dishonor God, we can never point that finger back at him as though he would desire that for us. That isn't the way that God works. That isn't what he wants for himself, let alone what he would want for you. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13 makes it so clear for us. That when you're tempted, you cannot point to God because God is the opposite of a tempter. In fact, God is the one who provides a way for escape for you to endure that temptation. That's who God is. He's a rescuer. He will not enable sin and he will not desire it for you. So if God's way never leads to sin, what way does That's our second point. Our way only leads to sin. God's way never leads to sin, but our way only leads to sin. In order to understand that, we first need to get God right. God is good. God doesn't tempt you to evil. God doesn't desire that for himself, and so he doesn't desire that for you. And so if you have wrong estimations of God, you'll have a wrong assessment of yourself. That's the argument that James is making. If you want to figure out why there's so much sin in your life, you need to get God right because once you do, you'll get yourself right. Verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. God is never to blame for your sin. You are always to blame for your own sin. It's the argument that James makes. You can't point at the devil for your sin. It's not him who James is blaming. Can't point at your bad friends can't point at the world's influence. You can't point at the things that you scroll through on Instagram. You can't point at the TikTok videos you watch. You can't point at the stuff that you watch on your laptop that no one else knows. That stuff is bad, but the issue is you. Your heart 
has set desires that go against the will of God and his holiness. Those temptations are there, yes, but you want them. That's what James is saying. Each person lured and enticed by his own desire. He points the finger squarely back on us. And he does so here by using imagery of both hunting and fishing. He, he creates this scenario in which animals or fish get trapped in order to explain how it is that your sin works and how it is that only you are to blame for the sin that you see in your life. Each person tempted when he's lured and enticed. Lured is a, is a word for, it's a hunting word. It's for setting a trap. I have an uncle who uh, used to have raccoons in his house all the time. And so, you know, in order to get those guys, you got to lay a trap. You don't just lay a trap. You, know, you put peanut butter in there or you put a banana or you put more trash. They love trash. So you take the trash out of your garbage can. You put it in the trap. You get them with something they want, right? And ultimately, a raccoon traps itself because the raccoon wants something and it finds it. It just happens to find it in the wrong place. That's how you set a trap. The other term is a, is a fishing term. It's, the, it's what you do when you go fishing, right? You set a hook and you set a bait, or maybe you have what they literally call a lure, which is a shiny little thing that goes in the water, and when it does, a fish goes, whoa, I like that, and it dies, right? That's setting a trap. And it makes some kind of sense when it's for animals, but James is using it to describe how it is that we fall into our own sin. And notice that the person he describes setting that trap, it isn't anyone else. It's you. Each of us tempted, lured, drawn in, being led astray, being led into danger, being led even unto death, not by anyone else, but by your own desire. That's the way that our hearts work. Our hearts are the very thing that ensnare us and trap us into a lifestyle that does not please God. It is the very thing that leads us astray from his holiness and his purity and his word that guides us and protects us and it puts us in harm's way. No one is to blame for that. And I know that to be true because he makes such an important statement here. It isn't just desire that does that. It's your own desire. Each and every single one of us are wired in a very unique way. And that means that each and every single one of us then desires to sin in our own ways. So it isn't anyone else's fault. It's that we love the things that we love and we'll do anything to do them. And when we live in that way, we are setting for ourselves a trap. It's interesting that if we were to turn to the book of Second uh, Peter, chapter 2, Peter uses language to describe this exactly when thinking about false teachers, those who claim to know God but do not know him at all. Second Peter, chapter 2, verse 12, but these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, 
born to be caught and destroyed. Blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant will also be destroyed in their destruction. Friends, that's not just true of false teachers. That's true of anyone who's in love with their sin over Jesus. That's the reality of it for us. That our sin has merited us only destruction and death. And because of that, then I have to ask you, are you going to keep clinging to those desires that you know lead nowhere? Are you so bound up in your lust and in your life and in your ego and and in you that you would continue to go down a path that you know leads to destruction instead of gaining Christ? Would you truly rather gain the entire world and see your soul be lost? That's the price for sin. Sin merits and deserves that, that someone pay for it. And apart from Christ, you will have to pay for your own sin, for the very desires that you constantly give in to, for the very disobediences that you constantly turn to. You have to answer for those. God's way never leads to sin. Our way only leads to sin. Thirdly here, I want to see this. Our way never produces God's blessings. Our way never produces God's blessings. We are responsible for our own sins. We can't turn to God and point the finger. We're trapped into sin by our own desire, our own lust, our own craving for sin and for rebellion against God. And if you know anything about life, everything in life has a consequence. So what is that consequence of sin? Verse 15. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Sin creates something. The image here is of of giving birth and of watching even a child grow and seeing what comes of that. Having four kids, I understand this completely. You look forward to the day that your baby is born. You look forward to watching that baby grow, but the way that James talks about it is so different. There's nothing joyous about this. There's nothing life-giving about this. In fact, it's the opposite. Constantly giving in to your desires, constantly giving in to your lusts, constantly giving in to yourself. It gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, gives forth, brings forth death. Sin gives this illusion that there's something being produced that is good. And in the end, it always disappoints. Some of you think that sin is worth it because you're getting away with it now. It's bringing some kind of earthly pleasure now. You're feeling some kind of satisfaction now. And I think James would ask you, are you going to say the same thing when you die? Are you going to find that same satisfaction, 
that same joy, that same pleasure, when in your sin you die and you have nothing left. That is what sin does. Sin gives you this illusion that it is life-giving and that it is pleasurable and that it is producing something good for you. And in the end, it takes everything. That's a huge problem for us, isn't it? Because if you're following this rightly, all of us have that problem. And so all of us face this death. And not just simply one in which we drop into a casket and then our loved ones miss us and then it's over. No, we're, we're talking about something much more severe. We could turn back to Second Peter. These two books kind of have a little bit of going hand in hand. In Second Peter chapter 2, sorry, chapter 3, I was close. Verse 7. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Guys, that is a picture of what is coming. That is a picture, a very grim picture of the reality of what sin has caused. Sin seems so pleasurable in the moment, but in the end there is fire and destruction and death and hopelessness. And the beauty of it all is not that we want to leave you stuck here in some kind of grim sermon where you're like, man, then what do we do? The point is that God has done something about it. That though this was our nature, Though there was no escaping this at all, we started with verse 12, blessed is the man. There is a way into blessing, but it's not by sin. There is a way into blessing, but it isn't in ourselves. There is a way into blessing, but it isn't the way we think. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Friends, our nature has an escape route. And we could not create it and we could not come up with it and honestly, we could not find it. So God did something about it. And though we merit death, he has promised blessing to those who love him. Do you see that we're kind of talking about really similar things here? The very thing that leads to death is your desires. Or let me put it another way. The very thing that leads to death is the things you love. The things you love apart from Christ cannot lead back to him. They only lead to death. Jesus is asking, God is calling that you would change your affections, that you would change your love and desires, not by your own power, but by his power, not to long for the things that that you want, 
but to long for the things that he wants. To shift your love from self to him. How is that made possible? We can't do that on our own right. We can't make that happen. God can make it happen. And this is why we read in Romans 5, verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we still longed for bad things, while we still did wrong things, while we still disobeyed our parents, while we still longed to do all the things that God hates, while we were still there, Christ died for us. Christ died for us. Now the blessing of verse 9 is ours. Since therefore we have now been justified, made right, declared righteous by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Every sinner is going to get what's coming to them. And they can't escape it. But Jesus, seeing that reality, knowing that truth, died so that we might not have to receive what we are owed. And instead, we could receive the gift of grace that only he can offer. Why do we need to be saved? Because otherwise we're ruined. Otherwise there's no hope. In and of ourselves, we would choose ourselves over God a hundred times out of a hundred. And infinite times out of infinity. And so God did the one thing that we needed. He came to save. 2 Corinthians 5.21 puts it for us this way. That God made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that we could become the righteousness of God. That means that every single person in this room, all of us that can understand that we're sinners and we know that we're sinners by nature, God has made it so that we could have that removed from our record. God placed that upon his son so that he could know the very thing that he never desired. The only person who never desired sin took it all so that we who do desire it, do want it, and do love it could receive the gift of grace. Why do we need to be saved? Because otherwise we're ruined, destroyed. Death is ours. But praise be to God, that is not the final answer. He has made it possible for each and every single one of us to turn to him. Sin is our nature, but Jesus is far greater than our sin. So the question is, will you continue to live in your desires, your lusts, your sins? That is who you are, and you can't change it. But God is willing to do that work for you. 
In fact, he's done it. He sent his son. His son took what you deserve so that you could receive what you don't deserve. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are a kind and gracious God. We thank you that in you we find hope for our souls. Though our souls and our hearts be sinful and lustful and desirous of wicked things, though our hearts be so against you and our hearts be set toward a trajectory and a path crash coursing toward death, you stepped in to make a way for us to be right with God. You have stepped in so that the very thing we deserve, your son received. The way that we ought to have been treated by you, a holy and pure and good God, you placed all of that upon your son so that we could receive all the benefits and all the blessings and all the love that is only owed to your son. Lord, we praise you because apart from you, it would not be possible to ever know you, let alone live and be with you for an eternity. Thank you, God, for making yourself known to us. Thank you that in so doing, you expose the truth about our hearts. And when we see the truth about our hearts, we see the beauty of the gospel. It it, it truly is like a diamond shining amidst a black backdrop. It, It shines all the brighter when we recognize our sinfulness. And so help us today to come to terms with that reality. Anyone here who doesn't know you, Jesus, I pray that you would do that work of salvation in their hearts. And those here who do know you, I pray that you would help them to assess whether or not they are still loving the same sins that Jesus died for. And that they would daily seek to kill those sins in the power of the Spirit granted to us by King Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen.